that means is Christ doesn't lose any sheep. We're in Acts chapter 12. I'll read the first 19 verses. Hear the perfect and the holy word of our perfect and holy God. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was also during the days of unleavened bread. And when he seized them, he put him into prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. On that very night, when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. Guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. His chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. He said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. He went out and continued to follow. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and the second gate, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. They went out, went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison, and he said, Report these things to James and the brothers. Then he left and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord God, again, thank you for this day, for the rest and the nourishment of our body and our soul. We pray that we would all be in the spirit on this, the Lord's day, and that we would separate ourselves in our minds and our emotions from the things of the other six days. And we would set our minds on things above and not so much on things below. Teach us, Lord, by your holy word. Conform us to your image, Lord Jesus Christ, you being the living word. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We've said, if this is the first time you've been to us with this series. We're in the series on the book of Acts, and just 
by way of announcement, tonight will be uh, the beginning of a new series in the Old Testament, and we're looking at Messianic uh, Psalms tonight, I think Psalm 2 for tonight. But this is a series in the book of Acts. And so if, if you've been with us or you know the book of Acts, you know that the primary subject of the book of Acts is the advance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ has said that the gospel will go from the Jews and it's going to go to the Samaritans or kind of a hodgepodge of Jew plus Gentile and then to the Gentiles. And Jesus Christ has promised, and this is what the book of Acts is recording, is that the gospel will go, will, underline will, it will go to the whole earth. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 and then certainly in Matthew 28, it will go to every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. It will. Christ says it will. And so when you think, well, all of the problems are insurmountable, they are insurmountable for man, but they're not insurmountable for our Christ. So we're looking at the advance of the good news all along that we've been considering in the book of Acts. You see the, the pouring out, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, um, equipping, empowering God's people to send the message that Christ saves sinners to, to the whole world. And we've seen God the Holy Spirit giving faith for people to receive Jesus Christ. And so there have been instances in this book of what I would call quantifiable success. More people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. People that once were unbelievers, as I was an unbeliever, becoming a believer. As my wife was a Hindu and now she's a Christian. We're, we're, we're seeing that in the book of, of Acts. And you remember early on in Acts... We've seen great outpourings of this quantifiable success. I think there were two or 3,000 souls who were added, the Bible says, to the church in one day. That's a revival. And then shortly after that, I think in Acts chapter 4, there were 5,000 people who repented of their sins and believed upon Christ for the salvation of their souls. And then just most recently, we've seen in Acts, in Acts chapter 11 something which is stunning. We see a Roman centurion, Cornelius, who gathers in all his Gentilish friends, and what happens? They come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, and the Holy Spirit pours out on them in an extraordinary way. So when we're... I'm, I want us to look first at the success of the gospel, which is what we're looking at. So when we come to our passage, we can understand it rightly. So we're looking at quantifiable success of the gospel. You can write over the book of Acts, certainly, and I would argue, over the entire Bible. You can write this. Even though I know some of you think that I, I am constitutionally melancholy, which is a sin, and I repent of it, but I'm not theologically or biblically melancholy. Uh, Christ wins. You can write over the entire Bible, over the, over the book of Acts, over this chapter. Christ wins. Ephesians chapter 4, quoting the Psalms. He's going to lead captivity captive. And everyone who is found in Jesus Christ, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, we in Christ win. All that those that the Father has given Jesus Christ to save, he saves. And everyone who comes to him, he'll never turn them away. And everyone who comes to them, what? He will receive them into the promised land. We, we win. We win. Quantifiable success of the gospel. And then most recently, as we referenced Cornelius, we've been looking at the qualitative success of the gospel. And what do I mean by that? Inwardly, as the gospel goes forth, as applied by God the Holy Spirit, our faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit joining us to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a qualitative influence on us. 
What does that mean? Not only are you converted to Jesus Christ, but God the Holy Spirit is increasingly, this is the qualitative success of the gospel, making us increasingly lamb-like and dove-like and Christ-like. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we're lions, tigers, and bears. Human beings, apart from Jesus Christ, are not lamb-like. They're not dove-like. They're not Christ-like. But when when the gospel is applied to us effectually, we become Christ-like. And the principal thing that we see when a person increasingly becomes like Jesus, what's the principal fruit? Is love. And why do I say that? We have seen, just before this passage, we have seen Jews that did not love Gentiles. And then after they were converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, then what? Then they loved Gentiles. They loved them so much to tell Gentiles that Jesus will save them from their sins. Then we've seen Gentiles who, before their conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ, hated Jews. After they're converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, what did they most recently do? They said, you know what? Those Jewish believers in Jesus Christ are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They went from hatred to love, and not just in word. Indeed, beyond their capacity, they took an offering to help their potentially starving Jewish brothers and sisters and sent a financial gift back to Judea. So we've seen the, the advance of the gospel, qualitative, qualitative, quantitative and qualitative success. And I say that because when we come here, our passage is a seeming reversal of that. We've just said Jesus wins. And now we're looking at, okay, Jesus wins? We win in Jesus? Yes, that's exactly right. Wait a minute. Herod, who hates Jesus, the Jews who hate Jesus, they just arrested and murdered James, an apostle, okay? And they just arrest and imprison the apostle Peter, and he's getting ready to die. He won't die, but he's in prison. So, success, 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 murdered. How does that work? If Jesus wins, and we in Jesus win, then this looks like a loss, does it not? It's a seeming reversal. Without eyes, a person who is an unbeliever, and they read the Bible, it is a closed book to them. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Most of my extended family are unbelievers. They're smart unbelievers, but they're unbelievers. And I said to my sister one time, my older sister, we were talking about the Gospel of John. And she said, well, I don't see what you see. We're talking about John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. I don't see that you, what you, look, it says it. And I said to her, and she's a devotee of Buddhism, I said, the Dalai Lama, if he could be honest, would have to say, this Bible says that Jesus is God. But it's not honesty. It's not intellect. It's spiritual regeneration. So an unbeliever comes and looks and goes, wow, we're winning. We're killing Christ's people. He's losing. That's without faith. They think this is a loss for Jesus. But what I want us to consider, even when we come to this hard passage of arrest, imprisonment, even murder, it's a seeming reversal of success. We're believers. We have faith. We can see the things that the unbelievers can't see. Even this reversal or seeming reversal will actually be a success in the hands of our God. You remember, it was, um, oh, was it Elijah or Elisha? It was Elisha. And he had a servant. And I think it was the Arameans, the Syrians, who were surrounding them. And he was doing what? Oh, no. 
my master, my master, says he to Elisha, we're going to be killed. And Elisha goes out, and what does he do? Oh, God, open my servant's eyes. Show my servant by faith that those who are for us are more and mightier than those who are against us. This passage, this, this, again, in a macro kind of a view, this passage is the opposition to Christ's servant for Christ's sake. They hate us because they hated Christ. So we're seeing the opposition. But then the passage also shows us the support. We have people that oppose us, but we have one that supports us and defends us and delivers us. So when we're, when I want us all to see not just this passage, but our entire lives. When we are opposed for Christ's sake, when we have enemies for Christ's sake, which we will, and we'll talk about that more in just a bit, which we will, and not just that, when we just have the common miseries and sadness of this life, affliction, sicknesses, disease, death, which is common to all, I want us, and this passage is teaching us, to put on our Christological lenses, to put our Jesus lenses on, to look at them by faith, by faith, even those things which seem contrary to the advance of the gospel, externally and internally, will actually work to our benefit. Remember the Apostle Paul actually went through a, a, a number of imprisonments, and listen to what he says. He's put into prison. We're going to stop this preacher from preaching about Jesus. Oh, no, you won't. Paul says in Philippians, Now I want you to know, brothers, he's writing from a jail that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else and that most of the brothers trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So we see success. We see a seeming reversal of that success. We could go from pleasant days in the blink of an eye to exceedingly painful days. But what this passage is teaching us is that pleasant days can work to the glory of God in Christ and painful days are not a loss to those who are in Christ Jesus. Even those things are serviceable. Paul in prison says, you know what? They locked me up to stop the gospel. And what happened? I'm telling all the guards about Jesus. And all the brothers and sisters who know that I'm locked up for the cause of Jesus Christ, and they're looking at a one who doesn't count his life dear. He's willing to preach Christ even unto death. What do they say? I can do this. I can do this. I can take a stand for Jesus. So advance, seeming reversal, but even the seeming reversal is an advance when we see it rightly by faith. I I, I stress that. We still have the flesh as Christians. When we... When opposition, affliction, and pain come to us, we think, oh no, I'm losing. This means that God is against me. Oh no, it doesn't. There was a guy named um, Hugh Latimer. He was an English Puritan. And he had a a fellow co-laborer for Christ, Nicholas Ridley. Hugh was the older man. Nicholas was the younger man. And they tied them to a stake and they were going to burn them in England. And they were going to burn them for wanting the Bible in English. They wanted the Bible that people could read. And the church at the time said, no, only in, only in Latin. Well, people don't speak Latin. That means the Bible's a closed book. So they went to the cross. And the old man turned to the young man and he said, Master Ridley, be strong and play the man. We are about to light a candle 
in England that will never be extinguished. That's this. That's this. Now you could say, well, I don't know if I have that faith. We don't have that faith right now sitting in a comfortable church. When we're sitting in an uncomfortable prison or tied to a stake, God will give us what we need. That's what we're looking at. As I've mentioned very generally, we see the opposition to our Lord Jesus Christ. Herod is against Christ. Herod is against the servants of Jesus. The unbelieving Jews are against Christ. This is an amazing thing. Who was the fellow, I don't know, 1970s, when, um, when bad things happened to good people? Um, Jesus never sinned. He went around doing good to the bodies and the souls of men, and people hated him. They hated him. They hated the perfect Holy One. Sometimes for us as believers, we get abused by unbelievers. Sometimes it's, it's for our sin. We, we, we kind of deserve it. Jesus never deserved it. Jesus says to us in John chapter 15, If they hated me without cause, then what for the believer? They're going to hate you. This is so contrary to the way that men would preach today. The way that men are told to preach today is hide the bad news, hide the difficulty, hide the cross of discipleship. Tell them it's just great. It's health and wealth. Hide those hard things. But Jesus doesn't do that. Why? Because it's true. (laughs) He comes and says, if they hate me and they kill me because you love me and serve me, they're going to hate you and kill you. He doesn't trick anybody into the kingdom. He doesn't wait. I've been in these churches. You get them in by the cute means, and then supposedly you're going to clean up the fish later. But that's, that's not biblical. I heard a minister one time tell me, with what you win them, you have to keep giving that to keep them. So if it's, it's, if it's wrestling matches and cafe latte or, 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 or skit shows or light shows, you've got to continue doing that. You brought him in the front door with that. You've got to continue. But Jesus doesn't do that. They killed me and they hated me without cause. And if you're my servant, they're going to kill you and hate you without cause. And Christ's lambs follow him. But the Bible says... The opposition that we're looking at here, and even the murder of James, the Bible says that this is a sign for good for us and a sign of God's judgment upon those who hate us. What does it mean, sign for good? We read, what is our confession? What did we read today? 17. I want to say, 17 is perseverance. The next chapter that comes after it in our confession is the assurance of grace. I love this doctrine. I love this. Assurance of grace means that we are confident that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have passed from death to life, from darkness to light, that we are recipients of his saving favor. You think, well, how do I get this confidence? Does he only give it to super saints? How do you get it? We think, fleshly, in our fleshly thinking, well, the way that you get it is if I'm totally healthy, totally wealthy, and everything is going swimmingly. And that's how I would grow in my assurance that I belong to Jesus. No. When they throw you into prison, oh Jesus, <laughs> oh don't leave me. When they tie you to the stake, we're going to kill you. Oh Jesus Christ, receive my spirit. When do we have the most confidence? We're in the, when we're at the beach having a Bahama Mama and going for a swim? Or when they say, 
you're going to die for Christ's sake. When? This. This is why I say seeming failure. Without faith, it's, people say you're losing, you're losing. With faith, oh no, you're not. The very means by which you think you're driving me away from my Jesus is causing me to cling to my Jesus. It works to our assurance. I'm not saying it works to our physical comfort. Actually, I think oftentimes just the opposite. Remember, um, was it Corey Timboom? Was, was it her sister Betsy? And she said to Corey, God told me that tomorrow I'm getting out of here. We're going to get out of here tomorrow. And I think she dies. She got out of there. God granted her the particular... Well, she say she died? Yes, but she went to be with the Lord. So even that experience drives us closer to Jesus. But it is, as I say, not only a sign of God's favor upon us if they hate us for Christ's sake, but it's a sign of God's judgment for them. The same God that saves is the same God that damns and ju- judges and damns. It's the same God. There's only one God. And so God has love, but it also he has divine justice. And when we think of the guards that try to uh, basically imprison uh, Peter, Christ's servant, and even Herod, as will come later, God will, God will judge them. And this is a sign for that. So it's a bad thing when you say, well, boy, those Christians, boy, I really hate those Christians. And I'm, I'm, I'm really going to abuse those Christians. And when God comes to our aid, it comforts us and it judges them. So beware. I, I, this, I want to get off on a, on a tangent on membership in the church. Beware of the professing people who say they're a Christian and they have nothing to do with the visible church. It, it, it's not biblical. It's not a good sign. And so don't be depressed when you have enemies for Christ's sake. It, instead, the Bible tells us, Christ tells us in the Beatitude, Rejoice. <laughs> Rejoice. As they treated the prophets, that's they're treating you. Now, you see, when we're looking at the devil's servants, Herod and the Jews, locking up Christ's servants and killing them, this is natural man. Natural man thinks, well, if I kill you, I win. But the Bible says, God says, that God's ways are not man's ways. His thoughts are infinitely higher than ours. We would not come up with the Bible if it were man. Man's religion is, you do what I want or I will kill you. That's the religion of man. And so the devil says, I'll kill Christ and I win. John Owen wrote a treatise, The Death of Death. The devil says, I'll kill Christ and I win. By the death of Christ, what? Did the devil win? By the thing that the devil thought he won, Christ wins. He purchases all of his elect people. By his death, the devil says, I'll win. Christ says, I'll win. Through the same thing. And Owen says Christ's death was the death of death for every believer. So death for the believer is not death, death. It's entrance into glory, which is what we'll see for James. So yes, we have enemies. We have an enemy that's actually named here. He's called Herod the king. He's kind of like a governor, but he's called the king. There are a number of Herods in the Bible. You have Herod the so-called great. Um, this is the fellow that tried to kill all the little baby boys from two years old and under in Ramah, trying to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Herod the Great is this Herod's grandfather. And then I used to remember this guy's father's name. But he had an uh, uncle, Philip, and there was um, uh, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, what did Jesus say? He called him that fox. And it was Herod Antipas that divorced his wife and then went and stole his brother Philip's wife, Herod uh, Philip's wife. He stole his wife, and then he married her, Herodias. 
and I think Herod Philip went and actually married another one of his family members. And then you have um, a Herod Agrippa I. This is Herod Agrippa I that we're looking at. And then there's a Herod Agrippa II. It can be confusing. Herod Agrippa II is in Acts chapter 25 and Acts chapter 26. So this fellow is, as I say, the, the, um, the grandson of Herod the Great. What's interesting, Herod the Great is an Edomite, an Edomian in the Greek, but Edomite. The Bible says, Jacob I loved and Esau I what? I hated Malachi uh, chapter 1 and then the book of Romans. But even before, you have Esau and Jacob wrestling in the womb of their mother and God prophesies and, through, through his man prophesies and says, the older will serve the younger. One is my chosen, the other is, is not, is a reprobate. So Esau, Edom, Edomites are almost the perpetual enemies of God's people. Read the book of Malachi, almost perpetual enemies. And so this man is kind of half Herod Antipas, Herod II, Antipas, um, Agrippa II, is, he comes from uh, Edomites, and his, his grandmother was Miriam. She was a Jew. So he claimed Jewish lineage. And through the Jew, Jewish lineage, there was a, a historian, not a biblical historian, but Josephus. He lived during this particular time. He said this particular Herod, Agrippa I, was exceedingly fastidious in the religion of the Jews. He wanted to ingratiate himself to Jews. He lived in Jerusalem at the time. And he, he was very strict to keep the tradition of the Jews. And he sacrificed every day in the temple. And so that's why when we come to the passage, he waits to kill Peter. He wants to kill Peter. He waits to kill him until after the Passover. Because you don't want to murder an innocent man on a high holy day. Beloved, that's natural man. Herod the Great, his grandfather was an enemy of Christ, and an enemy of Christ's people. His father was a Christ hater. He himself is a Christ hater. Natural people beget natural people. Only God the Holy Spirit makes a person born again. We, we do not regenerate a person by virtue of natural birth. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And so, enemy of Christ, enemy of Christ, enemy of Christ, Herod the Great, no doubt he gave himself that name. All unbelievers are idolaters. The favorite false god of an unbeliever is what? Favorite false god of every unbeliever. I don't care what corner of the planet they live on. What's the favorite false god of every unbeliever? Self. Self, self, self. I'm going to worship self. That's this guy. That's why we see him being politically expedient. He doesn't care about killing a righteous man. Why? Because it's going to benefit my, my career. It's going to help me. That's natural man. So he is an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bad thing to have your name recorded in the Bible. I would argue that this man is a picture, an illustration of natural man. If someone says, well, Pastor John, what do you think about unregenerate people? People who are apart from Jesus, savingly. You could be in the church, but not in Christ. So that's another sermon. What about the person that's not born again? What do they look like? They look like that. You mean they're all fixing to kill Jesus and his people? Maybe not outwardly. Maybe not outwardly. You ever see a little bitsy when they're little and mama or daddy says no? They're, they're, they're little. My grandmother used to use this term, cunning. Cunning means cute. I don't know what it means, but it meant cute. When their little fists ball up. Their little eyeballs squint. And the mother and father do what? Oh, isn't that cute? No, it's not cute. If they were big enough, they'd knock your teeth in. That's what that is. That's what that is. So when we look and say, well, 
Well, what do you mean natural man is this? That's, with enough, if you had the power, if we had the power, what is it? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely something. That, that's Herod. That's natural man. And we have those people for our enemies as lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see he arrests um, James. So Herod Agrippa I lived in Jerusalem. He was the king. He was the governor over uh, Judea and Galilee. And so what we're looking at is a a continued persecution of the church in Jerusalem. If you know your Bible, Acts 6, 7, 8, 9, persecution in the church. And then they have a time of respite, and we're back to persecution. So we've talked about this. Revelation chapter uh, 2 and Revelation chapter 3. Churches over in that Syria, Turkey, neck of the woods. You had a time of great flourishing and then a time of persecution. Someday there's going to be a time where there's only going to be believers on the new heavens and the new earth. But this is back to persecution. And we're looking at the hatred and the warfare. Now, with this fellow being a so-called king, what we're looking at is going from what I would argue in the Jerusalem prior conflicts, chapter 6 through 9, I would say that was ecclesiastical persecution of believers. What I mean is church persecution. And I'm using church to mean the household of faith. The Jews as the external visible church, the household of faith, they were hating all the Christians. Now what we're looking at is civil or political persecution of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the state. This is state-sponsored persecution of believers. So we had church-sponsored persecution, meaning the unbelieving Jewish people, persecuting Christ's people. Then we have the state-sponsored persecution of Christ's people. If you, immediately when we hear this, so the Jews are hating you because you love Christ, the Gentiles are hating you because you love Christ, the church is going to kill you because you love Christ, and the state's going to kill you because you love Christ. Who did they do that to? Who killed Christ? Who killed Christ? The Bible sometimes says the Jews killed Christ. Wait a minute, but I thought it was the Romans that killed Christ. Yeah, they killed him too. So the church rejected Christ. The state rejected Christ. And ultimately, if we were there, we would have been around in that crowd saying, crucify, crucify, but for grace. We see the very same thing. The, the visible church of Christ's day, I mean, you understand, I mean, not this church, but the household of faith, they say away with these Christians. Now we're looking at state, state approved. This is the king, this is the governor who says, I'm going to make a new law. And the new law is, it's illegal to re- read your Bible. It's illegal to convert to Christianity. It's illegal to preach the name of Jesus Christ. And if you do, we're going to kill you. Now, I have a question for you. So what are Christians supposed to do when they are under state-sponsored persecution for being a Christian? So James and Peter are not being arrested. James wasn't being murdered because he was a rabble-rouser. If you rob banks, then you should get arrested. If if you are a Baptist or a Presbyterian that robs banks, you should be arrested, and then you should be excommunicated. Peter says this, but they're not arresting these men for those things. They're arresting them for their religion. What are we supposed to do as Christians? What does the Bible say? We are supposed to do when the state sponsors persecution of Christians. What should we do? 
Look at your Bibles. What did James and Peter do? They built a militia. They stockpiled tons of guns. They held up canned goods. They practiced in the woods on Saturday. Some people are not happy with what I'm saying. And I'm very sorry for you because you're wrong. The state wields the sword. The church wields the word. We're lambs. Unless you're a cop or a military guy, you're a lamb. Don't talk to me the self-defense. They break into your house, you can stop them. Jesus says if they persecute you in another city, what? Then you run to another city. What did James do? He died. What did Peter do? He went to prison. And when we do that, what do we do? Not load our guns. We get on our knees and pray to our Christ. Isn't that nice, Pastor John? You're a little pacifist weenie. I'm not a pacifist weenie. I can read the Bible. I can read the Bible. You show me in the Bible where apostles, disciples, join a militia and kill, overthrow, state-sponsored persecution of the church. It is not there. You'll have to hang out in the Old Testament. You can't do it in the New Testament. And so God is showing us that this is what's going to happen. The unregenerate in the church are coming for you. The unregenerate in the state are coming for you. And here's the response. I know it's not palatable to the flesh. So this man, he is uh, Herod. He's the, he's the law maker, as it were. One of the things we learn about natural man as they oppose Jesus Christ, particularly politically, when we have political state sponsored, these guys make the laws. Natural man makes natural makes laws that fit natural man. And when they run contrary to what, are they, what they want, what do they do? We make another law. You're not supposed to arrest people for their religion. Oh, we just made a new law that says we can arrest them for their religion. You're not supposed to arrest people who don't do stuff that isn't worthy of death. We just made a new law that we can. This is man. This is here to show us this enemy is a political savvy enemy of the church. And the response of the church is not to be equally politically savvy. <laughs> We're to be especially spiritual. I, I, I know it seems like I'm over-spiritualizing, but I, I promise you, I'm not. And then he murders James. James, and then later we see James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is James, the apostle James. He's the brother of John, John and James. And they were sons of Zebedee, remember? These guys were what by trade? They were fishermen. And Jesus saved both of these men. And he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And here he's being a fisher of men. He gets arrested for it. What else is James called by Jesus? Do you remember? He's a son of what? He's a th- son of thunder. Him and his brothers, the Samaritans, wouldn't receive Jesus because he's a Jew. And so what they said, being good ministers, should we kill these Should we kill these guys? We should kill them, right? And Jesus says, what did he say? I'm going to get rid of you? He said, no, you don't even know what you're talking about. I didn't come to kill people. I came to save people. You don't know what you're talking about. And then James and John have their mom. This is how bravado guys do. They get their mom to come to the front. James and John get their mom to come to Jesus and say, can my two boys sit at your left and right when you come into your kingdom? This is classic, right? This, but this is, this is what we're... This guy, Herod Agrippa I, gets his job by uh, Caligula. because he, He's politically shrewd. He's buddies with him. And so even God's people... 
these apostles are being politically shrewd. They get Mama to go forward. They think this is going to be a political renovation. And if you're having a political show, what do you want to be? I want to be number one and number two. I mean, who wants to be number three? And Jesus looks away from the mother. He doesn't even talk to the mother. He says to the two guys, what? Can you guys drink the cup I'm about to drink? And what do they say? Immediately, yes, we can, no problem. And he said, you are going to drink my cup. You are. That's this. Remember the apostle Peter, John chapter 21? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. He looks at John, he says, what about him? And Jesus says, forget about him. You feed my sheep. Someday someone's going to take you, they're going to gird you, and they're going to bring you to a place that you don't want to go. They're going to kill you. This is all under the government of our sovereign God. So we're looking at the opposition of the Apostle James, and I'm arguing that we look at the deliverance of the Apostle James by the very means by which the devil thinks he's winning over James. And what's the thinking of Herod? This guy James is a leader in Christ's church. He's a preacher in Christ's church. I'll chop off the head and I'll kill the buck. That's how you kill a snake. I've killed tons of snakes in my life. What do you do when you kill a snake? You chop the head off. So this politically savvy guy, he's carnal, he's an unbeliever, thinks like this. He's a leader in the church. I chop off the head of the church and I kill the church. I stop the message of Jesus. Was Peter the head of the church? Was James the head of the church? Is any preacher, any apostle the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. All you get by chopping off this one man is what? You purify the church on earth and you fill up the church in heaven. Christ is the head. The unbeliever doesn't get this. They think we're a natural, we're a natural institution. This is supernatural. We are the body of Christ joined supernaturally to Jesus Christ. You can't kill a church because we're separated to eternal life itself, Christ. So killing one Christian is the blood of the church, is the, the seed of the, the church. It waters the church, as Tertullian, I think it was Tertullian, said. So by executing James or murdering him, it was the means, is a painful means, by which Christ brought James out of the war and he brought him home. It's a deliverance. And then I've gone way too long, but I do want to talk about Peter just very briefly. Peter is arrested. And again, this politically savvy man says, well, since I got such favor by the Jews for killing their apostle James, what I'll do is I'll arrest Peter, and then I'm going to wait till the Passover is over, and then I'll kill him as well. this is natural man. This is a politician. This is a natural politician. Whatever wins him the most votes, he's going to do. It's not, is this right before God? Is this wrong before God? I'm 58 years old. I can turn on the news right now and watch things debated in our government. What's a man? What's a woman? What's marriage? Trans this, trans that. 15 years ago, not even a discussion. Not even a discussion. And now it's like, it's like eating chips. It's so commonplace. Right? That's political expediency. That's unbelief. And the church is wrestling with this. Churches have side A, side B. What's a woman? What's a guy? What's marriage? What's this? Are you kidding me? We have the word of God. 
This is unbelief that creeps into the church. Let's do what's expedient. Let's do what works. Let's be pragmatic. That's Herod. That's Herod. What wins me the most votes? With one believer in God, you're in the majority. Better to be faithful and to have the love of Christ and die than to have the love of Christ-hating people and end up being judged by Jesus. So they arrest Peter, and he's planning, I'll wait till the, till the holy feast is over. And I, I guarantee you, in this, guy, in this guy's mind, Herod's mind, he could pass a, t- a, a lie detector to, I'm a good, righteous man. I made six sacrifices yesterday. Sure, I'm going to kill this, this innocent guy, but in natural man's mind, what they do is they make up a cause. Think of Christians. It's easy. I heard him cuss once. I heard him do something once. Therefore, I have to hate that Christian because he's a hypocrite. He's a charlatan. If, if they don't have a cause, they're going to make up a cause. And then they're going to cloak it with religiosity. Look at me. I'm, I'm doing all these things. And then I'm fixing to kill this guy. Really to advance my kingdom and my, my, own, my own self. And so what we find is the church in, in this area is praying fervently. In this woman's house, Mary, uh, John Mark, associated with John Mark. And, and they're having a prayer meeting. And they're praying and praying and praying and praying. And beloved, I, I, I don't want you to think of this. What is prayer? What is prayer? What is prayer? You say, basically, prayer is talking to God, and that is exactly right. But as, as believers, born-again people, everyone prays, which teaches the universality of, 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 um, of religion, of some kind of religion. But we, we talk about prayer, acceptable prayer, prayer that God receives. It's only to the Father, through the Son, in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And it's things, things for which are agreeable to His will. And what they're having is intercessory prayer. This is a prayer meeting. And it's a late at night prayer meeting. And they're praying fervently. And what are they praying for? God save him. God release him. I I want you to think of something. Put yourself in Peter's position. They just killed. They just arrested and killed your co-worker, your friend, James. They murdered him. You're chained to guys. You're chained. You're in a prison. You know they're coming to kill you. What? What are you thinking at this time? Are you thinking probably an angel's going to come? There's probably a, a prayer meeting. And uh, you know what? Next week I'm going to the beach. What are you thinking? Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, I'm about to see you. It looks utterly bleak. This passage shows us what we are supposed to do as believers when we cannot. Sometimes people say, where there's a will, there's a way. I've said this before. My father was a devotee of Vince Lombardi. I, I was raised on bootstraps mentality. Like, you suck it up. For men, you suck it up. Men suck it up and you make it ha- I hate to say that. That's how we suck it up and make it happen. What happens if you don't have bootstraps? What happens if you can't suck it up and make it happen? What happens if you're in prison, chained? What happens when you cannot? Doctor says, I'm really, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. What happens? Are we hopeless? The believer is never hopeless. This whole message is, Peter can't free him. We can't free him. Our God is an all-powerful, all-good, all-merciful, all-loving God. And they pray. And God sends, in answer to their prayers, he sends an angelic servant. 
And Peter is freed. He comes to the house. He's knocking at the house. The servant girl comes up. She tells the rest of the guys, Peter's free. And what do the guys say? You're nuts. Now, I, I want you to think of this. Oh, God, free him. Oh, God, free him. Oh, God, free him. He's free. There's no way. I, I know the book of James. I, I, know, I know the wisdom. I know the doubting. But I'm going to tell you something, beloved. God does not answer our prayers based on the strength or the purity of our faith. Because if that were true, he wouldn't answer a bloody one of them. Right? Right. Why does he answer our prayers? Because he's a loving, merciful, kind, powerful Christ. Beloved, we have enemies. We have those who oppose us. We have a Christ that dies for his elect sheep, that prays for his elect sheep, and will use every means at his disposal to bring us into his presence. I want you to think of this. No weapon, no weapon, not on above and not below, formed against you as a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ will ever prosper eternally because of our Christ. May God receive glory by the preaching of his word. Amen.